Episode 106 of the PJ Archive comprises a phone interview I did with the genius American musician, songwriter, singer, producer and animal rights activist known as Moby, who's credited with bringing dance music to a mainstream audience in the United States and the United Kingdom particularly. The interview took place in 2021 when Moby was promoting Reprise, an album released on Deutsche Grammophon and Decca Records, featuring all his hits re-recorded with a full Philharmonic Orchestra. There was also a fascinating new documentary out, cleverly entitled Moby Doc, in reference to the famous novel Moby Dick, whose author this Moby may be related to. A truly unique character, Moby began by talking about his extraordinary start to his extraordinary life. So my dad died when I was about between two and three years old. And oddly enough, my mother and I never really talked about him, which I thought was normal when I was growing up. But then as as I moved into adulthood, I realized it's kind of strange to never talk about a dead parent with their only child. Is it true that he nicknamed you Moby and that you are the great-great-great-nephew of Herman Melville? Is that true? The story that they told me, or the story my mom told me, is that when I was born, or rather before I was born, they had decided to give me this very grown-up name of Richard Melville Hall. (laughs) And then once my mom was holding me after I was born and they looked at me and they realized that Richard Melville Hall is a very grown-up name, they gave me the nickname Moby thinking that that would be my infant joke nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they believed that 55 years later I would still be known by my infant joke nickname. <laughs> and it's all, my, my, my whole name is sort of based on the Herman Melville relationship, you know, my legal name is Richard Melville Hall, and with the nickname Moby. So I have to assume that the, the relationship to Herman Melville is true, but who knows, maybe my parents were delusional. <laughs> and how important has the book Moby Dick been to you? Well, it's been phenomenally important. The way in which it's important to me is twofold. Uh, on one hand, there's the hereditary aspect. You can even say like the sort of cultural hereditary aspect of being, you know, connected to this troubled writer from the 19th century in New York and New England. And I, you know, pre-sobriety especially, was a very troubled musician in New York and New England. But then on a more sort of allegorical or metaphoric level, what the book's central theme is, is the relationship of humans to the natural world, or to the, you know, as Nietzsche described it, to the void, to the, you know, the unknowable objective universe. And that has been a really fascinating recurring metaphor for me in my own life. Do your relatives and friends call you Richard or Moby? At present, the only person on the planet who calls me Richard is my dentist. And the reason he still calls me Richard is it just, he's an elderly Japanese man 
And when he started calling me Richard, I just didn't want to make the effort to correct him. So now all these years later, my elderly Japanese dentist still calls me Richard, basically just because it seems like more trouble than it's worth to tell him that my nickname is Moby. Nice one. How much easier do you feel your childhood would have been had you had siblings? Uh, well, it turns out I do have a sibling. Wow. Um, right before my mother died, she told me that when she was 18, she got pregnant and gave birth. So somewhere in the world, I have a half-brother. I've just never met him. You know, because my mom put him up for adoption immediately after he was born. But apart from the sibling I've never met, I mean, growing up as an only child, because it's the only thing I've ever known, to me it just seems normal. Um, the same way I imagine someone growing up with seven or eight siblings, you know, that probably feels normal to them. I have to say that as a musician who works by himself, as a writer who writes by himself, as someone who, you know, lives alone and largely works alone, that I do appreciate the comfort with isolation that I have that is definitely a product of growing up without siblings or a big family. If you post your DNA on uh, Ancestry.com, they'll find your missing sibling for you if you want. Yeah, assuming he Has as or well, she, yeah. I don't actually know if it's a band or a woman, um, assuming they are still alive or that they have posted their DNA on there. Um, I actually did 23andMe when it first started because I was hoping that maybe I had a little more sort of like racial ethnic diversity, but turns out I am 99.999% white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Had you not had so much to deal with in your early life, do you think you'd have been so creative otherwise? Well, it's a wonderful question. Um, and yeah, I realized that one of the reasons I dedicated my life specifically to music and animals, you know, working on behalf of animals, is that they provided me with, music and animals provided me with such a sense of safety when I was growing up. Um, I mean, with music, I was able to sort of step into other worlds and other places. You know, when I was young and I would listen to an album or listen to a song, you could imagine yourself you know, in the environment or the country in which that song was recorded. And by spending time with animals, animals, I just found them to be so innocent and predictable. And so, yes, if I had had a, a more conventional or stable childhood, it's quite possible. In fact, I'd say most likely that I would not have put so much importance on things that enabled me to feel a sense of comfort and safety. And you explain in Moby Doc that you loved animals from a very early age. Do you think if you hadn't gone into music, you might have worked with animals instead? Well, in a very real way, I actually see my job as working on behalf of animal rights. Yes. Um, music, as I mentioned earlier, like regarding my studio, like music is what I love, yeah. but I don't see it as work, whereas, you know, Working on behalf of animal rights on a on a charitable level, um, on a media level, that's actually my job. So actually, to your question, I quite literally see my job as being working on animals. But yes, if I wasn't, well, originally my career path 
I thought I was going to be a philosophy professor because it's where I studied at university, and I thought I would just make music in my spare time and be a you know get my PhD and be a philosophy professor somewhere, and uh, that was not how it worked out. Was there any history of music in your family at all? Yeah, there's a long idiosyncratic history. I mean. My great-uncle Richard, who I was named after, he was a trumpet player in a jazz band. My great-grandmother, Ruth Hall, she taught classical composition in Boston for a long time. My mom was a pianist. My uncle Joseph plays flute and recorder. Yeah, so I was surrounded by music and musical instruments when I was growing up, which is why, you know, when I was nine years old, I started studying music theory and playing guitar. But your parents were both involved in medicine to some extent. Do you know if they wanted you to go into that as well? Well, uh, I mean, my mother was tangentially involved in medicine in that she was a secretary at uh, Columbia University. One thing I'm incredibly grateful for is that my mother and almost everyone in my family all they ever wanted from me was to be a weird artist. <laughs> I really think that if I had gone on to be a doctor or a lawyer, my mother would have been disappointed, which okay. is obviously the inverse of most people's experiences where, like, you know, their parents want them to be lawyers or doctors, yeah. and the thought of their child becoming a, mu a weird musician is, you know, anathema to them. Whereas I remember when I was, I guess, 21 years old, I moved into an abandoned factory yep. in a crack neighborhood. And my space in the factory, I had no running water, I had no bathroom, and my mother came to visit me, and she was jealous. Ooh. How did she feel about your success as a musician later on? And, and did you treat her to a house or a car or introduce her to the many VIPs you've met? Well, I, I had a degree of sporadic success between 1991 and 1998, but she died in 1997. So she didn't really get to see the sort of bigger, broader success that I had later. Um, I know that she was, you know, because in my family, like almost all of my relatives are painters or musicians, but they have never really done much in terms of, you know, commercial work. You know, my mom was a great painter, but she never actually showed anyone her paintings. And so I think she was just really very happily surprised that her son had figured out a way to take his music and actually get it out into the world because no one in my family had really been able to figure that out beforehand. Now, the synthesizer, bought in 1980 at a second-hand shop. Um, tell us about this synthesizer. When did you last use it? Well, so what's interesting is I bought it because it was so inexpensive. I think, I don't know, maybe it was $25, $30. And almost immediately after buying it, I realized it was incredibly limited. Uh, like it only plays one note at a time, and you can't really connect it to any other instruments. And as the 80s progressed, you know, MIDI was invented, which enabled instruments to talk to each other. Most synthesizers, you are capable of playing more than one note at a time. And so I put this synth, it's a Korg micro preset. I put it in storage and ignored it. And then about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I read an interview with the band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, yeah. OMD. Yeah. And I had really loved, especially their first three or four albums. I 
thought they were phenomenal. And they said that on those records, this Korg micro preset was one of their main synthesizers. So I dug it out of storage, and now I use it constantly because I realized it's actually this phenomenal musical instrument, and I just ignored it for decades. Now, I'd like to talk about AWOL, the first record that you released in 83. You say that only 100 exist. How many copies of it were released? I think, because um, we, we, we pressed it up ourselves. I remember very clearly we recorded it in a strange studio in Stamford, Connecticut, and then that summer, it would have been 1983, eight, no, 84, the summer of 84, I found a place in Norwalk, Connecticut that pressed vinyl and I brought them the tapes and I, I think they made a hundred of them. Hmm. Maybe, maybe we splurged and made more, but it, it certainly, it was less than 300, more than 99. Somewhere, I, I can't remember the deal that the pressing plant made with us. You know, it was one of those deals where like, okay, if you make 199 records or 150 records, they throw in free stickers or something. So They, they must be worth a lot on was, eBay now. I haven't checked, but yeah, apparently because of the scarcity, I think there's some value to it. Have you used AWOL in any of your compositions since? I have not. Um, I, to be honest with you, I have not even listened to that music in a very, very long time. Um, if I remember correctly, it has some merit, but really what I was desperately trying to do with this band was I wanted to sound like Ian Curtis from Joy Division, or I wanted to sound like Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunny Men. You know, and I, I love Joy Division, I love Echo and the Bunny Men, but I was a bit sort of pretentious, or let's say more pretentious then than I am now. So there's an awkwardness to it, and when I listen to it, it's endearing, but it's definitely awkward. Is it fair to say that Go was your big break? Oh, without question. I mean, and not even just Go, but the remix of Go, the wood tick mix, because the first version of Go, it was the B-side of a 12-inch that I released in 1990, and that 12-inch sold around 1,000 copies. And then uh, the remix that included the strings from Twin Peaks went on to become a hit single. Is it well, through Go that you got to know David Lynch? Yeah, because obviously a lot of people had tried to sample the music from Twin Peaks or use the music from Twin Peaks or the dialogue from Twin Peaks in recordings. And uh, like I remember meeting Angelo, Angelo Badalamenti, and it was this really fascinating thing where I was with someone from a record company who knew Angelo and Angelo had this huge, expensive Mercedes, and he drove to my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and we sat in his car and talked about music. And this was 1991, maybe 1992. And, you know, at that point, I was living in yet another factory with no running water and no bathroom, and I just couldn't believe that I was meeting the man who had written Laura Palmer's theme. <laughs> Has David or any other movie maker ever asked you to act? And how have you felt about that? Well, David actually did ask me to have a tiny cameo in the third season of Twin Peaks. So if you watch the third season of Twin Peaks, Dolores Del Rio performs, and there, way in the background, is me playing guitar. 
I think I'm on screen in the background for approximately two seconds, so it's a very easy thing to miss. It was just sort of like a, a funny, friendly thing that uh, David and I did. What have been your favorite career highlights? Well, the biggest career highlight, from my perspective, was it was 1988, and I had dropped off a DJ tape at this new nightclub called Mars in New York, and the man who booked the DJs called me and hired me to DJ there. And I remember it so clearly, getting home and hitting play on my tape-based answering machine, and this message from this man, Yuki Watanabe, who was the DJ booker at Mars, asking me to DJ on Friday night, because I, you know, came from this weird old punk rock background, and I DJed in dive bars, and I never thought that I would actually have a job DJing at a cool nightclub in New York, and then lo and behold, he hired me. So as far as career highlights, that was a really big one. And then I do remember maybe something a little more, not that recent, but a little perhaps bigger, was it would have been the spring of 2000, and the album play had been out for about 10 months, but I got on the phone, it was a pay phone, because I didn't have a cell phone, uh, I got on the phone with my manager, Eric, who lives in the UK, and he told me that he had big news for me, which was that play, after being out for 10 months, had gone to number one in the UK. And I just couldn't believe that I was a musician who had a number one album in the UK. Especially the album Play, I really thought it was going to be my last album and it was going to disappear without a trace and I was going to go back, as I mentioned, get my PhD and teach philosophy. But then there he was telling me that it had gone to number one and I just couldn't, it, it, it had never entered the realm of possibility to me that I would be a musician with a number one album. I'd like to talk to you about the hat that David Bowie gave you, if I may, please. What first made you an admirer of David Bowie and why? The first song I heard from David Bowie, I think, would have been Space Oddity, which is probably true for quite a lot of people. Yes, me too. And my mother bought the compilation Changes One Bowie, and I guess I was oh, eight years old, nine years old, and I listened to that album constantly. And I looked at the cover, and I read the liner notes, and this was pre-internet, this was pre-anything, so there wasn't really much, there was no way for me to find out more about David Bowie. But then when I was 13, I got my first ever job as a caddy at a golf course, and I saved up just enough money to buy Heroes and Lodger. And so between those three records, Changes One Bowie and Heroes and Lodger, I just became an obsessive, obsessive fan. And how and when did you come to meet him? Well, we first met in 1995. He was on tour with Nine Inch Nails, and they had an after-show party and this was before I got sober. So I went to the after show party and I was very drunk. And someone said, oh, would you like to meet David? And I couldn't believe that this was going to happen. Um, I drank some more vodka to work up my courage. And I met David and I pretended to be normal. Like, so we had a two minute conversation and I just couldn't believe that I was speaking with David Bowie. And then about five years later, he emailed me, he somehow got my email address and asked if I wanted to get coffee because he had moved into an apartment across the street from me on the Lower East Side. So for a few years, 
we were neighbors, we were friends, we toured together, we spent holidays together. And I, again, I just couldn't believe that I was friends and neighbors with the greatest musician of all time. To what extent did you remain close to him till the end? Well, I hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years before he died, but I was like devastated when he died, but I was also glad that he had lived as long as he did and he was able to spend that much more time with his family, especially with uh, Lexi, his yeah. youngest child. Because he had, as you know, he'd been battling health issues for quite a while, so I was devastated that he died, but glad that he did have a few extra years. And we're often warned not to meet our heroes, pun intended. Presumably, you were far from disappointed with him. I mean, I was a nervous wreck every time I hung out with David. I mean, we went on tour together, we spent so much time together, and every second I was with him, I was, you know, anxious because I was aware of the fact that I was spending time with the greatest musician of all time. You know, I wasn't, yeah. in my mind, he was, a, you know, almost had achieved demigod status. So I spent a lot of time pretending to be normal when inside I was just a nervous wreck. And when did he give you the hat? So I think because he gave me a few good presents. The hat is obviously a pretty great one. Um, so it would have been 2001, probably around Christmas time 2001. I had been at his apartment and he played me, I, th I mean, I get a little bit confused because I was, you know, I was in the apartment quite a lot, but he played me some music he was working on and I agreed to do a remix, uh, obviously for free, just because he's David Bowie, so he, you know, no matter, if he had asked me to clean his toilet, I would have said happily, just give me a toothbrush and point me to a toilet. So I agreed to do this remix and I think he said something like, oh, well, quid pro quo here, and he handed me this black hat. And I thought, okay, this is nice. And then he said, it's the hat that I wore in Man Who Fell to Earth and yeah. the cover of Station to Station. And I felt like I'd just been handed the Holy Grail. Like I was, you know, and again, like as I often did with David, tried to pretend that this was somehow normal when inside I couldn't believe that my, you know, my greatest hero had just handed me this totem. I hope you don't mind if I talk to you about alcoholism, because um, your father battled alcoholism, didn't he? And, and how inevitable do you feel it was that you'd struggle with it as well? Well, when I was growing up, I mean, I started drinking and doing drugs when I was around 10 years old. Wow. And up until I got sober 12 years ago, I just always thought that I was an enthusiastic drinker and, in, and an enthusiastic taker of drugs. And... I uh, thought it was relatively normal to drink 20 to 25 drinks a night and to spend $300 on cocaine every day. And then towards the end, when I was, you know, actively trying to harm myself or kill myself, again, a part of me thought that was just normal, you know, because so many of my heroes had died, you know, whether it's Dylan Thomas or Ernest Hemingway or Ian Curtis, I just thought that being an addict who wants to die was normal. Then once I finally got sober, I did suddenly realize the very self-evident uh, hereditary aspect. You know, mm -hmm. realizing my father was an alcoholic, his father was an alcoholic. So many of the people in my family are alcoholics. And what 
really brought it out into stark relief for me was that half of my family is Jewish, even though I'm not Jewish. And what I noticed is I would go home for family gatherings, and all of the wasps, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the family, like, we're all alcoholics, and the Jewish people in my family can all drink fine, and none of them are alcoholics. It really just proved to me that sort of hereditary component that I probably should have been aware of from day one. It was once said of Jim Morrison that he drank to hide his pain. To what extent do you feel that's true of you? I drank to feel normal. I mean, I think a lot of people drink to escape something. I drank to find something. Like, it was only, you know, before I got sober, the only time I ever felt calm and normal when it was when I was drinking. The rest of the time was when I felt just discomfort, you know, like awkwardness with myself, discomfort with other people, you know, confusion around the world in which I live. And I drank, I and mean, so maybe you could call that pain, but it was more just constant discomfort. And I remember having my first ever drink and it was the first time in my life the discomfort abated. I think you said that you became sober 12 years ago. How difficult has it been to stay that way? Well, strangely enough, it hasn't been difficult at all, which, again, maybe is a dangerous thing to say. I mean, who knows? Maybe by the end of the day, I'll be in a motel room smoking crack and drinking rot gut vodka. But the last 12 years of sobriety, I guess it's because I bottomed out so hard, and my, my bottoming out took took place over years, and it, the, all the evidence was just so bad that by the time I got sober, I knew that I was done. Like, it was just this moment of like, okay, I'm done. Like, all evidence points to the fact that I'm a tragic, bottomed-out alcoholic. I guess I have to look at the evidence. And as a result, it's made sobriety that much, I wouldn't say easy, but that much, I don't know, more stable because the moment I would think for a second about going out and drinking, I just remember how horrifying the last, I mean, the last, honestly, the last 10 years of drinking were. So I had this crazy night out, I guess, six months before I got sober, and I ended up in Harlem, which is where I was born, yeah. and I was with my friend Amelia, and we walked and I was very, very drunk and probably out of my mind on drugs as well. And we, we walked to the hospital where I'd been born, which is still there, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And I just had this moment of quasi-clarity, of recognizing, like, oh, I'm destroying myself, like, through alcohol, through drugs, through self-involvement, through just anxiety, like I just recognized like I was actively destroying myself and in that moment I knew I wasn't done but I just sort of thought like, okay, the end of this is on the horizon mm -hmm. and as Amelia and I were walking around trying to find a taxi, I saw these perfect orange stripper shoes mm -hmm. on top of a dumpster and so I put them on and wore them for the rest of the night as we went out drinking more, doing more drugs and uh they are just a sign of, to me, of the abject lunacy that attended my addiction. You know, I was not a quiet addict who stayed home and drank red wine. Like, I was 
you know, the person who stood on top of a bar and screamed at the top of my lungs for anyone to sell me or give me cocaine. Please excuse my ignorance, but what are stripper shoes? Oh, <laughs> stripper shoes are very gaudy shoes that strippers would wear when they're working. The shoes themselves are bright orange, and the heels are made out of, I assume, steel or paint, some painted metal. Like, they're ridiculous. In Moby Doc, you describe making music as self-healing. How close are you to being healed now? I... <laughs> presumptuously, I think I might be fairly close which is such a dangerous thing to say. I mean, because invariably, you know, like the next thing to say after you think that you're close to being healed is that a school bus has just fallen on your head or something. But the reason I say that is because I've, in the course of my life, made so many mistakes. You know, I've, I've done so many things that I thought would fix me or fix my life, and they were a lot of them very disastrous. Hmm. And so because I've made so many mistakes, almost empirically, I've been forced to figure out what works. And for me, what works is not, you know, staying up until nine o'clock in the morning every night doing tons of drugs and drinking and touring constantly and desperately pursuing fame. Like I tried those things and they didn't work. What does work for me is leading a fairly humble, understated life. You know, like, as I mentioned, making music for the love of music, working on behalf of animal rights organizations, um, going hiking and spending time in nature, like leading an almost simple, borderline monastic existence. And as a result, I feel healthier in a more sustainable way than I ever have. Excellent. When and how did you become friends with Hunter Biden? Well, I guess a few years ago, and we met through recovery, you know, through because we're both insane, sober addicts. And there's just a, and you know, we're roughly the same age. We grew up in roughly the same time, roughly the same place. So there's just, every now and then you meet someone and you just feel a sense of really this like solid familiarity. You know, we grew up watching the same TV shows, listening to the same music, etc. But mainly bonding around sobriety, because there's, it's only when two bottomed-out alcoholics and addicts trade stories and talk about their experiences, you realize there's a, a kinship. But obviously, what's especially germane globally about Hunter is not only he the president's son, but he, as you know, was the reason Trump was impeached the first time. And he was the whipping boy for all, like, so much right-wing media. And it was just very odd. Like, for example, I was talking about being friends with David Bowie and how I never forgot that David Bowie was a demigod and the greatest musician of all time. Whereas with Hunter, he's a lovely, normal, humble dad. You know, like, we go hiking, and he brings a baby Bjorn with his son Bo in the baby Bjorn, and he spends his time in the garage painting and spending time with his wife. Like, he's just this humble, nice, normal person, and it's been very hard for me to reconcile that with the way he's been presented in the media. Obviously, there are a lot of 
celebrity memoirs out there. Mm-hmm. And Hunters, from my perspective, it stands head and shoulders above almost all of them because it's, first of all, he's bright, so it's very well written, but also it's honest. Mm-hmm. Like, it's honest in ways that at times you almost want to pull him aside and say, did you really need to include that? Like, there's mm-hmm. some profoundly dark stuff in there. And But the idea, his idea in writing the book was sort of what we do in 12-step meetings. You know, you tell your story hoping that it will be of service to someone who's battling their own addiction. Has he changed since his dad became president? Not that I can tell. Uh, I mean, apart from the constant secret service presence, which is (laughs) logistically it makes going to the supermarket a little challenging. But no, not, I mean, he's just a lot, like when I think of, my friends, and I don't have too many close friends, they all have in common is they're smart, they're funny, but they're humble. Hmm. You know, I find it really hard to be friends with people who are arrogant or entitled, and one would think that the president, the son of the president would be arrogant and entitled, but he's exactly the opposite of just, you know, the humility that comes from being torn apart and dragged through the ringer, not necessarily the the Trump stuff, but more just the ringer of addiction. Mm-hmm. And how well have you got to know um, his father? No, I actually don't know Joe at all. So you've never even played the White House? No, I got a weird blanket invite. Well, I don't even know if it was an invite. It might have just been something that my booking agent thought was funny, which is because no one was willing to play the Trump inauguration, apparently the inaugural organizers sent a mass email and an invite to all of the talent agencies basically saying, do you have anyone who'd be willing to play at the Trump inauguration? So my booking agent at the time jokingly said, hey, do you want to go DJ at the Trump inauguration? And I thought that was just such an absurd, funny idea. So, so no, I've never, I've, I went to the White House once, I think in, when I was nine years old on a, t- a class trip, but apart from that, no. So you weren't tempted to do the Trump inauguration? Uh, I have a feeling that even if I had considered it, they would have done a little bit of background check on me and realized that I was not who they wanted DJing at the Trump inauguration. How satisfied are you with your career so far? Well, considering my career goal was to sell maybe slightly more than 100 copies of a record, everything has been baffling and surprising. So in terms of satisfaction, I am very happy with where I am right now, personally, professionally, and so I'd say at the risk of being immodest, I'm very satisfied because I never expected anything. What would you like to achieve with the rest of your life? Well, I only have a couple of goals. My two biggest goals are so absurdly grand that I'm almost hesitant to say them, but one is to help create a world where animals are allowed to live their own lives separate from human involvement you know, where animals are not used for food or fashion. Um, And the third is to somehow help humans to stop making so many egregious, terrible mistakes. You know, the fact that we're destroying the only home that will support life, as far as we know, in the galaxy. So those are my two biggest goals, and I recognize they're absurd and grand. And the other is to just work on music and to try to see if I can make something beautiful. Have you got an animal sanctuary anywhere? No, I mean, I, 
love that animal sanctuaries exist. Um, my friend Earthling Ed uh, has a sanctuary in the UK called Surge, and they do, they do great work. I don't know anything about actually taking care of farm animals. Like, I wouldn't have a clue as to how to actually run or operate or maintain a sanctuary. So I, I visit sanctuaries, and I'm grateful that they exist, um, and I am happy that I'm not the one running them. Do you have any pets of your own? Yeah, I learned a long time ago, because I, for work, have had to travel quite a lot, that it just wasn't feasible for me to have companion animals at home, because I was away from home, I mean, less so now, but especially back when I was touring a lot. Again, this might seem a little esoteric, but as time has passed, I've come to realize that I'm very satisfied and very happy experiencing animals and life, so regardless of whether I am their constant companion. When I go hiking, I see mountain lions, I see bobcats, I see coyotes, I see rattlesnakes, and I'm just so enamored of animal and even insect life in all of its forms. I mean, clearly, I don't want to cuddle rattlesnakes or black widow spiders, but I'm really utterly fascinated by observing them and being able to encounter them in the wild. When the pandemic started, or maybe like a minute before the pandemic started, my friend Lindsay adopted this tiny little puppy and named it Bagel. And I met Bagel about a week or two later, and Bagel was fairly ill, you know, because she had not been treated well at her original home. But Bagel just seemed like the tiniest, most adorable living thing I'd ever seen. And I fell in love with Bagel. And uh, so luckily, Lindsay is around the corner for me, so I get to see Bagel three or four times a week. And she's just my, my favorite living being. To many people, pets are child substitutes. How much do you hope to marry and have children one day? Well, especially now that I'm 55 years old, I have sort of made peace with the fact that I will never get married or have children. Um, I mean, who knows? The universe might have different things in store for me, but for a long time, I had this idea that, you know, at some point I would tour less and start a family, but it never happened. And I just realized that, you know, it's part of getting older is recognizing almost, we'll call it like the, the diminishment of potential or possibility. You know, like I've recognized I will never be a professional athlete. I will most likely never be president of the United States. And I will, as far as I can tell, probably never get married or have a family. Luckily, the work that I do, whether it's creative work or philanthropic work, I find to be so satisfying that I don't really have much regret around not having a family. At the end of Moby Doc, you ask the Grim Reaper what happens after we die, although we don't hear the answer. Would you like to be reincarnated as an animal? Uh, you know, it's funny. Living in Los Angeles, I have a lot of new age friends, as you would imagine, living in Los Angeles. And I was with a bunch of friends, you know, the sort of people who go to Burning Man. The question was, if you had a spirit animal, what would it be? And I don't know if this is reincarnation, but, you know, we'll call it reincarnation adjacent. 
and everyone I was with picked spirit animals of like an eagle or a dolphin or a horse. And my spirit animal is this little black beetle that lives in Griffith Park in LA where I live. And the reason I thought of it as my spirit animal is it's completely unglamorous. It's usually very awkward, like it just stumbles along, but it keeps going. And so I don't know if I was this little black beetle in a past life or if it's just my spirit animal or if I'll be reincarnated as it, but I definitely feel this strange connection to this intrepid, unglamorous, unattractive little black beetle that just like, if you throw a log in front of it, it figures out how to go over or around the log. And so, uh, yeah, so if I'm reincarnated, I don't know if I'll come back as a glamorous dolphin, but I might come back as this unglamorous little black beetle. It must be said that many musicians have wished they were a beetle. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is spelled differently, not, not the clever... Not the clever liver puddly and pun, but just a, an actual little stumbly black beetle. Finally, how would you like to be remembered after you leave this planet? I would like to be remembered as someone who worked on the three things I just mentioned. You know, someone who worked as hard as they possibly could to create more compassion for animals. Someone who maybe in their own minuscule way tried to draw attention to some of the egregious, terrible things that humans are doing. And lastly, someone who made music that aspired to beauty.